0: Hello and welcome again to another edition of Locked In Science where once again we are bringing you half an hour of science from the safety of our own homes. Who are we? Well my name is Stu and joining me on the show as usual is Claire. Hello. Hi Claire and what have you got for us this week?
1: Well, Stu, as we know, Victoria is in the midst of a um, of a resurgence um, in COVID nineteen cases, and um, yeah, uh, you know, big shout out to everyone doing their bit, staying home um, to keep this resurgence under control. Um, but I thought it would be a good time. A couple of months ago, I talked to a CSIRO scientists scientist, Dr. Paul Birch, about Uh, sewage surveillance um, as a way of checking in to see how many undiagnosed cases of coronavirus there are um, in a community. So um, checking I guess people's poo, looking for coronavirus using molecular biology and then um, assessing from how much they find as to how many cases there are that are either um, unsymptomatic or um, you know just flying under the radar with community transmission. So considering how much, I guess, community transmission sort of amping up right now, thought it'd be a good time to look at what research is out there, how much it's being used in Australia and overseas. And there's some quite interesting um, reports of how it's being used, which is, which, um, which I'll tell you all about.
0: Well, it's certainly a novel way of keeping track of, of uh, where the virus is moving through the community, so to speak.
1: Look, it um wouldn't be my number one way of testing for um COVID-19, but it would certainly be my number two way.
0: And of course, Chris is with us as well. And Chris, what have you got for us this week?
1: Well, Stu, you
2: might remember a few weeks ago I talked about um some of the basic science of twins because my partner and I are expecting some twins. I said of twins later in this year. Um Woo-hoo! Yes, thank you. After going through IVF, we were successful and we are expecting twins. Now, um, I thought I would follow that up and talk a little bit about the IVF process itself. Uh, just to, I suppose, you know, we're, we're trying to be open about it, we're trying to reduce some of the, um, the the stigma around it, but also, I guess, to give people an idea of, of what can be involved and what I've learned about things like what affects. Um, what affects success in particular the genetic testing and that what that can reveal um on the embryos and what we
0: learned from that and some of the research around it i'll look forward to hearing about more about that later in the show so please stay tuned
1: So it has been a pretty devastating week for Victoria as we continue to see cases of COVID-19 uh, infections increasing and Melbourne metro areas going into another stage three lockdown for at least the next six weeks. Um, but you might remember, um, cast your minds back to the first set of lockdowns, Um, Chris and Stu. Remember when I talked to CSIRO scientist Dr. Paul Birch um, about uh, the CSIRO and University of Queensland co-research to figure out a way to test Australian sewage for COVID-19? Do you remember
2: that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, that research group were using information, um, you know, gleaned from the sewage from all of our toilets um, to make an estimate on how many people in the community are infected with COVID-19. So in light of the increase in community transmission in Victoria, I thought it might be uh, a good time to update on what is happening with sewage surveillance in Australia and around the world um, to sort of inform and track uh, COVID-19 infections. Um, so first maybe I might just give a recap of what this sewage surveillance is and how it works. Um, so back in the early days of, um, the COVID-19 pandemic, I know it feels like years, but, um, I'm just talking March, which was what, four months ago now, I think so. (laughs) Um, scientists discovered that the coronavirus is shed in the poo of infected people. So people um, go to the toilet, uh, <laughs> do a number two, and um, a whole lot of a whole lot of the virus is contained within that fecal matter. In within that fecal matter, uh, but unlike um, when you find virus in mucus or in spit, the bits of virus found in fecal matter they're no longer infectious. Um, they they can't give other people. Um, COVID-19 that's because they've lost their protective outer layer of the virus and they're just pretty much bits of RNA floating around in poop so bits of genetic material floating around in poop Um, but these bits of genetic material are very useful because um, they're collected into the one system the sewage system and then they can be sampled at a point so um, you know you're your um sewage treatment plant um and there, scientists can use pcr and molecular testing um to test for um the virus that causes covid19 the SARS, the virus that causes covid19 yes chris
2: presumably there needs to be enough virus in the community to be detectable or is that like how sensitive is it do we know
1: well the piece, well the PCR test is quite sensitive and what it does pretty much is um it will as a um as a test it sort of like goes in and finds a small bit of genetic material then it amplifies that quite a lot um so you can get um you, you can you can detect the COVID-19 causing virus from even a very, very small amount of the coronavirus. Um, Yeah, so by testing sewage, you're pretty much potentially testing millions of people whose poop goes into the sewage um, system and you're getting an understanding of how many cases you might have regardless of whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic, um, and considering some of the research coming out now is suggesting that asymptomatic cases could be as high as forty-five percent of infections. Um, that's that's quite important to know. I guess you know you're know who's or how many people there are that are infected, regardless of if they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. Um, now, as you can imagine, it's a powerful tool. It's one that could be extremely useful when outbreaks pop up. Um, and from my research, it looks like Melbourne Water um, are doing trials and using this this technique, this sort of surveillance Surveillance sewage technique. At the moment, they've put a very sort of like low on detail press release out that says they're using the technique at different sites across the city, but I couldn't find any sort of like um, detail on where they were, what what they've found, or anything like that. So I guess that's pretty low on the. Um, low on the list of things to do at the moment, but it does look like they are doing it in Melbourne, which is fantastic um, because that's, you know, another data point to be able to make decisions. Um, And there has also been um, some other interesting applications of the sewage surveillance system in Australia and overseas as well. So actually researchers at the Australian National University have been testing ACP the act's sewage for about a month now so in this time the act has had no known cases of covid 19 they've been they've been um you know they've worked very hard and they've kept it like that um but health officials didn't know i guess you know whether there was any community transmission happening in the population sort of lurking around in the background. Um, so even though they weren't being presented with positive cases, they didn't know whether, you know, what was actually going on. So um, the researchers from the ANU were decided to consistently test sewage over the last two months. Um, and that's quite easy because Canberra apparently only has one sewage treatment plant. so. If you test that treatment plant, you're testing for everybody within that area. Um, and they were able to definitively test whether there's any undetected community transmission um, and found that for the month of May, um, they found no positive tests for coronavirus. So that's so good. So, this is, yeah, that's very good. <laughs> that's very good. So, so it's you basically, can like,
0: basically like testing a whole city all at
1: once. Yeah, exactly so it's not going to give you the sort of granular detail for, um, what, you know, where exactly it is or contact tracing and all those other things that you need, you know, apps and you need, um, you need to do tests on people to be able to do that, but it does give you an overview, um, which is why it's called surveillance rather than, I guess, you know, um, testing specifically. Uh, yeah, so the other interesting research that, that has come out recently about um, sewage surveillance comes from the University of Barcelona. And this is a paper that has been submitted, but it has not been peer reviewed yet. So that's very important to know. But it suggests that the um, virus causing COVID-19 has been detected in sewage samples in Italy, backdated to March, 2019. So not March, 2020, um, that's that's but a whole year before.
2: That sounds hard to believe.
1: It sounds so hard to believe. I mean, a whole nine months before it was detected in Wuhan in China. Um, it's it seems completely shocking um, if this research does hold up, um, and it also seems quite shocking that they would have published this or pre-published this without sort of peer review yet. Um, Yeah. I mean, if it is the case, there's some fairly big implications for the spread and epidemiology of this disease. Mm. Um, But yeah, like I said, it is under critical review. So any evidence needs to be treated with caution. And um, yeah, but interesting to sort of like look at how they found the results and also look at how, I guess, different researchers are using this sewage surveillance to do, um, to sort of backdate and try to work out how this disease spread so in this particular study wastewater epidemiologists examined frozen samples of influence so that's um that's all the all the fecal matter and all the um sewage just before it goes into a wastewater treatment plant between um january 2018 and december 2019 so they wanted to really know when the virus entered Europe. Um, Interestingly, they found evidence of the virus in January, 2020. um, And this was around 40 days before the official case was declared at the end of February in Europe. So they did find that um, the disease was lurking around a lot earlier than they expected. Um, And then all the other samples that they did, you know, back dating from that January sample came back negative, except for this strange March twelve on twenty in twenty nineteen, which gave a positive result in their PCR test, (laughs) which is super weird. And um, there is an article in the conversation that gives three that suggests three reasons for this. So one was uh, that coronavirus, the coronavirus that causes COVID nineteen. Uh, was present in the sewage at a very low level. Mm -hmm. Another is that um, the test reaction was accidentally contaminated with um, the coronavirus uh, in the laboratory. And, I mean, this happens sometimes in labs. Um, Yeah, look,
0: uh, having done a lot of PCRs at various times, it's it's quite easy to contaminate. You're probably testing multiple samples at the same time. It's just a simple matter of... You know the wrong pipette in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there's contamination straight away, mm. kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, for anyone who's worked in a lab before, contamination is a um, is something that you know is very familiar to labs, and especially with PCRs, um, it sort of plagued me throughout all my time um, working with PCR. So yeah, absolutely, that's that's a very real thing. Um, and then another explanation is that um, there. Are other RNA or DNA in the sample that resemble the coronavirus test target site that the PCR is trying to amplify and duplicate? Um, so you're only so, testing
2: you're only testing part particular genes, aren't you? You're not testing the entire DNA sequence.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So maybe that um, that part of the genetic code is not as, I guess, unique. As they think it is. Um, So it's giving a false positive, um, which is, which, you know, makes sense as well. So what's probably needed now is further testing, independent verifications by other labs, um, and also, you know, some real stringent peer review. Um, But I think right now it is super interesting to know um, that our is teaching us more and more about COVID-19 where it came from where it is how to manage outbreaks um, and most importantly how to keep everyone safe
0: science the final frontier these are the voyages of lost in science our ongoing mission to explain strange new words to seek out new science and new explanations to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
2: You're listening to Lost in Science. And yeah, I'm talking about what's involved in IVF, or specifically what my partner and I experienced going through IVF. Now, I should say from the outset, this is our own personal experience, plus I've added on the relevant research that I've been able to find on the topic. Um, but of course, everyone's experience is going to be different. Uh, I just think it might be helpful for people to know some of the basics of what's involved and what can happen throughout the process. Absolutely,
1: because um, there is a lot of misinformation out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's and, that's fantastic.
2: And certainly, we didn't know what to expect going in, so it was eye opening. But anyway, so like we had been, um, we had been trying for a while to get pregnant, um, and nothing had been identified as being particularly wrong as a cause of this. With either of us. Um, as we've discussed before on the program, fertility does decline with age, and so that seemed to be, I guess, the the high-level reason. Um, but what was interesting, I guess, we found out throughout this process, some of the insight, we got some insight into why um, fertility declines with age. And I will, I will get onto that in, in a little bit. And that was, I found, quite interesting. But yeah, so essentially, the, the process of IVF is pretty straightforward. They, um, they basically give you hormones to stimulate ovulation, harvest some eggs, fertilize them in a dish, Grow them a few days and freeze them until they're ready to be transferred. Now, the hormone section is quite unpleasant. Uh, it goes for about nine days of injecting this follicle stimulating hormone um, into the belly, which is not a fun experience. Um, and that's all to make sure that the the ovaries produce eggs, which can then be can then be harvested. Um, so yeah, that was the um I guess the most unpleasant part of it. But apart of, then after that, it is really about making sure the embryos are okay to be to be transferred. Um, we opted for something called pre-implantation genetic screening, or PGS, which is basically where they test the fertilised embryos um, to see if see if there are any genetic problems that might stop them from being successful. Um, what does it rules out the ones that are found to have a problem but it does theoretically increase your chances per embryo of success Mm. um it was interesting looking at the research for this because it's something that it's a technique that's been around for a while it didn't actually used to be recommended a few years you look back about five years it wasn't recommended um and that's because it could itself damage the embryos in the process of taking a sample that to be tested however they've got this new technique where they harvest cells at the a stage of development called blastocyst and this is when the embryo kind of makes this spherical shell around itself um, and so what they can do is they can take cells from the part that is going to become the placenta rather than the fetus and so that makes the whole procedure safer and so then there is a net benefit to actually doing this.
0: That's that's a pretty precise kind of procedure to be doing at a blastocyst sized uh, embryo isn't it?
2: They have good microscopes, too. Yeah, they have. They I'm have sure very they do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and uh, very steady hands.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So what they what they test for in this test is basically it's basically called something called aneuploidy. Or I think I pronounced I think that correctly or it's aneuploidy, which is basically having the wrong number of chromosomes. Right. Um now you guys know how many chromosomes a normal human cell has? Um 23 pairs yes great that's 46 in total yeah forty six in total
1: yeah
2: so 22 normal pairs and then there's the xx or xy typically um so a nucleo is when there is either a chromosome missing from one of these pairs or you have an extra one now usually this is not good for the embryo usually having a whole extra or missing chromosome means that the embryo won't survive um, the main exception to this rule is down syndrome which is when there is an extra copy of chromosome 21 but generally um yeah apart from that most conditions where there is an extra or missing chromosome it means the the embryo is not viable the pregnancy is not successful and this is one of the biggest reasons why pregnancies do not succeed is having this this um fairly simple genetic problem so here's where we get to like the the stats of what the chances are of having um a, a good test or not from this um genetic testing so in our situation we had the um the follicle stimulating hormone 19 eggs were harvested when they came around to the harvest season uh now 19 wow a-
1: that that seems like quite a high number
2: it is actually a very high number. So when you artificially stimulate the, the ovaries, you have a chance of something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is basically where, yeah, the embryos get too overactive, you get a buildup of fluid, and this can be very dangerous. Mm. Now, the information they gave us said that you're at risk of this when there are 20 or more eggs collected. So we had 19, which is just on the safer side of that. Wow. But still, it was kind of skirting the limits of mm. acceptability, shall mm. we say. Um, Out of these 19 um, eggs, 11 were successfully fertilized. Uh, We opted to have one transferred fresh and the rest agreed to have tested, as I said. Um, The one that was transferred fresh did not make it, unfortunately. Um, So we said to have um, them tested. Seven survived to about day five when they do the testing. Um, Of those seven, three passed as having the normal number of chromosomes wow it sounds sounds like a big drop off doesn't it it
1: it does yeah
2: yeah so i was curious about this so i checked the research published research on this topic and found a couple of papers that look at the rates of having what they call euploid embryos this is the ones with the right number of chromosomes and how Mm -hmm. that varies with according to the mother's age um the papers i found they basically agree so i'm going to quote a paper from Demco et al, which was published in the journal Fertility and Sterility, uh, was published in 2015, and it involved 46,439 of these PGS tests. So it's quite a large observational study. And what they found was the linear relationship. So the rate of a ploidy, that's having the wrong number of chromosomes, that increases according to the mother's age. Um, at the age 40, you can expect on average 37% of embryos to have the right number of chromosomes
1: so that's one third about a third a bit over one third yeah
2: which is essentially wow. what we found we had three okay. out of seven okay. that that passed, so it was pretty much in line with what we experienced um so as we started with a lot of eggs in the first place so that made us actually lucky that's why we ended up with three at the end um according to this paper the average number of embryos actual total number not percentage the average total number that pass per ivf cycle is 1.7 at age 40.
1: wow okay so
2: you were more than double that we were more, we were more than double that now even there once again there, there's no guarantee that pregnancy will be successful um now different clinics they do have different success rates you can't speak for all of them the figures we were shown gave a, a success rate of about 50 percent per screened embryo um so if you think about it, you have say 1.7 on average per cycle each one of them has 50 percent chance you know there's not a good chance that you're going to have a successful pregnancy per mm. IVF cycle that's just how the statistics work out so this shows why it is quite so difficult and it can show you why people can take multiple cycles to get pregnant and also as i said this gave an insight to why as you get older you know it is actually difficult to get pregnant naturally if the um if the embryos are coming out with these um genetic problems um so it's certainly not impossible to get pregnant naturally it's just the odds are against you um yeah, and that is kind of, yeah, I suppose the, the hard uh, reality of this situation. Anyway, so yeah, that's what we had. We had three successful embryos. Um, I said roughly 50% chance that they're going to succeed. The first one we had implanted failed. And it was the second one in our case that was the successful uh, transfer. However, as I said, we are having twins.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: we recently had some more testing we had to have done and we found that the, um, they are different sex, the twins, which means they're not identical twins, which means that somehow, even though we had a single embryo transferred, we got an extra one come in naturally.
1: Okay. So does this mean that one of, uh, your unborn children is an, is their through IVF. Yes. And one is there through natural.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: <gasps> Just... Lot twist. How, is plot how twist. often
0: How often does that happen, Chris? Look, they <laughs> keep telling us it's
2: it's pretty rare. Um since I've been looking at the stats, it actually is more more common than you might expect, but it is still a pretty rare event. But then the idea of an embryo splitting is... is pretty rare too, so
1: Wow, that is yeah. um, that is quite the plot twist. That's and... right. We
2: we managed to get lucky twice in the same <laughs> go. But yeah, like I said, this shows you how it's not impossible to get pregnant naturally. You know, Um, it happened with us. Just have to be at the same time. We got our success with IVF as well.
0: It's going to be one of those eternal questions: which one of these babies cost you more money? (laughs) (laughs) Will it
1: affect (laughs) treatment? Yeah, we we
2: we promise not to use that against them. But you need to have something (laughs) up your sleeve, surely. You got to
1: have something up your sleeve. My question is. is there any research around i guess um you know the instances of people falling pregnant after an ivf cycle
2: you do hear about it um i certainly had anecdotally a number of people say it um so people don't talk about going through ivf a lot it's something that a lot of families keep quite quiet um so I've heard of a few cases where people have said they were trying IVF and then just when they were doing the transfer, they got pregnant naturally. Um, and I imagine it's the kind of story that's fairly, that's easier to tell. So I can't tell you exactly how often that happens. Certainly from the stats that I've looked at with um, with twins, as I said, it's not it's not unheard of for people to have a natural twin at the same time there is a transfer. So that to me indicates that, you know, this sort of thing does happen, that, people can have that natural pregnancy while they're trying IVF Um, but yeah I don't have full stats on that it's not the kind of thing that I've seen um, some published research on but there could well be something out there but yeah so either way we are very we are of course over the moon and I'll be updating you guys if any more interesting um, twin pregnancy science comes up
0: we've come to the end of another episode of still locked in science we are still locked in but we're still going to bring you all the science uh every week for half an hour lost in science is usually recorded at the studios of 3cr in melbourne but at the moment from the homes of the presenters themselves. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can contact us by email. We are lostinsight at gmail.com You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter or you can just tune in next week when Chris, Claire and Stu get
1: locked Locked
0: in. in
1: Iince!